This podcast is proud to be part of the TalkSport Fan Network. TalkSport. Powered by fans. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The TalkSport Fan Network is proudly supported by McDelivery, bringing you the food you love. McDelivery brings a top-tier lineup of food right to your door. No matter the result, you'll always be winning with McDelivery. So the only thing left to say is, you in? Order now on the McDonald's app, and you can also get reward points delivered too. So that ordering today means some tasty rewards for tomorrow. Only via app at participating restaurants. 18 plus, rewards registration required, points only on menu items, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. This podcast is sponsored by Magic Rock Brewing. Currently, you can get free delivery on all orders over £40 and 10% of all online orders by using our code of TAKESTHATCHANCE10. Jetson's there, Billy Head! A goal, Chris Billy Huddersfield Town! The most famous goal of Chris Billy's life! Is this the moment for Lee Fowler? It is. Take your place in Division 2, Huddersfield Town. Rupian Steve Simonson's boots now. He's missed. Steve Simonson clears the flame of the goal and collapses in a heap of tears. Huddersfield Town are promoted. Stephen Schindler. A chance to write his name in Huddersfield Town legend. And he takes that chance! I thought that we needed another forward. I thought that we it would be good if we could really pull a good name.
Okay, hello and welcome to a special episode of Andy Takes That Chance. Picking up from our Cult Heroes series last year, we start this summer with a cracker. Joining myself, Matt Shaw, Neil, Phil and Dev, we have one of Huddersfield Town's all-time top cult heroes. It's Steve Kinden. How are you doing, Steve? Uh, now we've managed to get connect- connected. Very, very well indeed, Matt. Thank you. <laughs> it's great to see you. How are you doing? I've had a really, really bad 18 months, to be honest. But I'm bouncing back a little bit. Good stuff. Good stuff. Yeah. Well, hopefully tonight we'll we'll have some fun and we'll reminisce good. about some of the good old yeah. times and we'll we'll hopefully have a laugh on the way. We, you've already made us laugh a couple of times and we've not even got going yet. So uh, I'm I'm looking forward to this one. Um, I thought it might be quite good to start with how you got into um, into football because so you grew up in Warrington, didn't you? Which is a, a staunch rugby league yeah. territory. Um, Today, the route yeah. into football is always pretty much the same path. Kids are picked up by academies, you know, like Phil, at a young age, and then they go through this academy system, whereas back then it's a lot more interesting, isn't it, um, the, the f- sort of path to professional football. How did you go from this sort of rugby league stronghold to to Burnley, uh, which is uh, which you signed for first? Well, you said rugby league stronghold, which, of course, it was. Um, at primary school, I was born in 1950. So throughout the, well, after I went to school in 55, the next five years, I was, at, I was at a primary school in Warrington. There were no football posts on the playground, or not the playground, on the fields adjacent to the school, the school playing fields. They were rugby posts. And you didn't play football, you played rugby. And of course, it was rugby league, which <laughs> went against the grain for me dad because my dad played for England at Rugby Union. His brother, my uncle Bill, he played for Great Britain at Rugby League. Uh, so it was definite rugby family. So much so that when I, when I was eight, I met a lad, I played with a lad for the next three years called John Richards, who of course went to Wolverhampton Wanderers and I played alongside John for five years at Wolves. We were friends when we were eight-year-olds. When we both passed our 11-plus, John went to the local grammar school at Warrington, which played soccer. But my dad didn't want me to go there, and I didn't want to go there. So I went on the train every day to the next town closest to Liverpool, which is Widnes, and I went to Deacon Grammar School, where, for the next five years, I played rugby union. And so that was my sport. And even, even now, I will tell you, I was a far better rugby player than ever I was a footballer. Rugby was in my heart, and rugby is still in my heart. When you leave school in 1965, 66, 67, you in school at the age of 15, 16, and you have a choice. You're offered a contract to a professional football club, or... You can go to work elsewhere every week and and train for nothing. It's an amateur sport, rugby union. So really, it was the money side of things that attracted me to football when I was offered a contract. I had not... Yeah, we've always put the jacket down and have a kickabout, but I've not had one organised game of football in my life until I was 16. I saw England win the World Cup. I'm sorry, I've just told you a slight lie there. I was 15 years and 11 months old. I saw England win the World Cup in the July and 
I was taken with the excitement and the majesty of the occasion. I was a member of the local youth club, but I never played football for the team. But in the November, one month before my 16th birthday, I, um, we, we, were, we were frosted off. The rugby pitch was too hard on a Saturday morning. It was frosted. There was a heavy thaw. I went on the train home having not played. My pals at the youth club had heard that I'd not played that morning. And they said, come and have a game of soccer with us. And I had my very first game of soccer in the November of 1966, a month before my 16th birthday. And 17 months later, I played in the first division. <laughs> That's a rapid rise. That is absolutely rapid rise, yeah, isn't it? Yeah, very, very quick. Harry Potts, my manager at Burnley, told me in the December, I'd only been there three months at the club, and it was my 17th birthday, and he said, it was practically, Stephen, he always called me Stephen, it was practically a toss of the coin whether we signed you or not as a professional. Yeah, I signed as a professional in the December of 67 on my 17th birthday. And in the April, I played at West Ham against Jeff Hurst, Martin Peters and Bobby Moore. Oh, who had so switched me on to football less than two years earlier. That's that's crazy. I was I was my next point really was that you, you started in a real golden age of football as well. It's just pretty much where colour TV, you know, the colour TV and yeah. match of the 70s, uh Bill Shankly, Clough, Best, Law, Charlton, like I say, Bobby Moorehurst, yeah, Frank Worthington, obviously. Um, yeah, what a time to to break through, you know, in, in that sort of sort of era and and wolves also picked you up relatively quickly so 1972 so you're quite young and even though you're still yeah so you're still 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 young there yeah that how did that sort of come about because obviously there's a there's a story there isn't there and uh, there's an ex Huddersfield town player it was the the manager of wolves as well at the time yeah yeah the jimmy glazard era the wing half of a change of management at burnley um, Burnley had a very enthusiastic manager and in the 19, uh, late 50s, early 60s, uh, Burnley won the first division, 1960, cup finalist in 1962. The manager, Harry Potts, was still there. The, his captain was Jimmy Adamson. Jimmy was a very, very good coach and he more or less said to the chairman, if, we, if I don't get promoted to be manager... I'm going to leave the club. So they pushed Harry Potts upstairs into a general manager's role and Jimmy Adamson took over running of the team and Jimmy Adamson and I didn't see eye to eye. It wasn't a personal thing. It's just that I needed a long ball over the top to exploit my speed and my strength. Jimmy wanted to play football, uh, what I would call tip-tap keep possession, which is very, very successful. And it's what all the clubs, more or less, employ now. Keep the ball, pass, control, pass, control. But that was not, that nullified all my assets. And so he, he managed for a season, uh, which I was in and out of the side, having been an ever, more or less an ever-present. I was more or less on the sidelines. He made me his substitute a lot of times. And when they were losing 1-0 with a half an hour to go, he'd throw me on and invariably we'd turn the game round. 
Anyway, that summer, um, Harry, it was in the summer, um, Bill McGarry came knocking on the door and offered what was then a record transfer fee paid by Wolverhampton Wanderers to uh, take me to Molyneux. Because I think I saw a story about this whereby, um, was it was it a quite a secretive where they said you need to go into the boardroom to speak to Bill and you thought it might have yeah. been another Bill, wasn't there? Well, well, yeah, because that morning I woke up and read the paper and our all our friend Frank Worthington had just been turned down by Bill Shankly. Bill Shankly wanted to sign Frank, but he failed his medical. So I'm reading that. 11 o'clock in the morning, there's a knock on my door to say, come to the club, somebody wants to buy you. The chief scout takes me to the club and he wouldn't tell me who it was. And when he got out of the car, Jimmy Adamson said to the chief scout, go into the boardroom and keep Bill company whilst I have a chat with Stephen. And I thought, oh shit, it's Bill Shankly. I'm going to Liverpool. And then Jimmy Adamson said, I've got Bill McGarry next door. I said, who? <laughs> no, I didn't. No, I didn't. No, I didn't. So, yeah, it was Molyneux rather than Anfield. Still still a good club at that time because they're fresh off. Absolutely. Uh, Stan Cull- was it Stan Collister and Billy Wright? And that, that obviously wasn't too too far in the past at that point. No, so they were mid, still mid, a big mid, club. Mid-50s. This was 72. So it's like 15 years previously. Yeah. So they won, the, they won the FA Cup in 1960. So a, a that was the last win, major yeah. honour. But the year before I joined, they were in the UEFA Cup final. Mm. The UEFA Cup final that everybody forgets because there were two English clubs in it. Tottenham and Wolves. Tottenham won the UEFA Cup in 1972. Wolves were beaten finalists. And whilst I was at Wolves, we won the League Cup in 1974. Which is, which is a huge, a huge thing. So... One one sort of real real quirk that I, I've I've read as well was that you were the fastest footballer in the UK, not just yeah. once but quite several times over. Can you tell us seven, about the seven, uh, seven times, seven times over? And yeah. you were um, you were pretty sharp. I'm looking at some of the times, and you know you were no slouch, were you? Ten point seven hundred meters. And just for reference. The women's 100 meter Olympic final, the last one, was 10.71. So that really, for, for I didn't clarity, know that. The, as, the, as, when I ran, when I ran 10.7, the British record was 10.3. So the athletic British champion would have beaten me by about three meters. Did you run in boots or was it on spikes? And oh on no, track? no, 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 no. This was on a tartan track. It was at Meadowbank Stadium, Edinburgh. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Carton no. track, starting blocks, spikes, finishing tape. Well, not a tape, but an, ele- an electronic eye finishing, just like it would be at an athletics meeting. That's brilliant. I, I, everybody thought Malcolm McDonald was very quick. I've got a photograph in my scrapbook because Malcolm joined the joined the race the first year I won it, which was seventy one or seventy two. Anyway, I've got myself just quote, breasting the tape, breasting the magic eye. And Malcolm McDonald is exactly 11 metres behind me. I ran 100 metres when Malcolm ran 89. And everybody thought Malcolm McDonald was fast. He was. (laughs) To be fair, but you were obviously... My younger younger brother 
represented Great Britain at athletics in the 110 hurdles. And although he was a fabulous hurdler, my younger brother Malcolm never ever beat me in a flat race. And he ran for Great Britain. And that just shows how quick, obviously, you weren't. And obviously, well, the, at Wolverhampton, when I spent the five years at Wolverhampton, of course, athletics was an amateur sport. And um, the top, the top athletic team in the country was Wolverhampton and Bilston. And during the summer months of the holiday, of 10 or 12 weeks holiday, I used to train every Tuesday and every Thursday with the Wolverhampton and Bilston athletes. And there were many, many full international runners there. And I was training with them twice a week and beating them. There was a lad called Glenn Cohen, fabulous lad. Um, he was a 400 meter runner. And I needed to train when I needed, I didn't need basic pace, but I wanted to improve my stamina. And so I trained with Glenn an awful lot and <coughs> because he wanted stamina for 400 meters. And at the end of every training session, Glenn and I would have a race just for a bit of fun. And anything under 300 meters, I would beat him. Anything over 300 meters, he would beat me because of his stamina. And 300 meter race was just on the night, who felt best on the night. But Glenn Cohen was a regular 400 meter international for Great Britain. Oh. Good <laughs> it's crazy. I'll tell, tell you if I may, a quick story. Yeah. He said, I went down on a Thursday night and he said, uh, I said, where is everyone, Glenn? There was about a tenth of the people there. And he said, it's Tessa's birthday, Tessa Sanderson, the javelin thrower. He said, it's Tessa's birthday. Um, were you not invited? I says, no. He says, well, I, I'm going down after we've had a bit of a run, Steve. Come with me. I said, I'm not going if it's, I'm not invited. He says, oh, Tessa, it's just an oversight. She won't mind at all. So I said, where are we going? And she said, East Park. He said, East Park. And that was in the black area of Wolverhampton. And you were told... You know, you not, might not be safe in areas like that. So I walked into this party of Tessa Sanderson, her 21st, and um, they turned the music off as I walked in, and everybody was looking at me. And, oh, I thought, Christ, I'm dead. <laughs> Fortunately, Tessa saw me, ran over and jumped into my arms and gave me a kiss, and then so I was made very, very welcome. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> Um, yeah. You also play with Derek Parkin as well at, at Wolves. So he's a, yeah. another one who yeah. came through at Huddersfield, didn't he? Um, a a good player as well. Played left back, I think, for, quite a bit for, for Wolves. He was a right-footed left back. He wasn't comfortable being a right back, but his strong foot was a right-footed. Super player, super player. Very controlled, good tackler, good on the ball, good player. Mm, he's very highly rated by um, some of the, the older end of Huddersfield fans who saw him as well. Absolutely. Really loved him. Um, and his, his wife was from Huddersfield. Oh, excellent. Yeah. There's, there's also another good story. So you've, you've also got an impressive record. England youth, under 23s, B internationals. Um, yeah. And one story I really liked was when Jimmy Hill mentioned you on Desert Island Discs <laughs> as well. I wonder if you wanted to go into that one, because that was a, How an did international you get that trip. One? Uh, I've, I do my research, Steve. This is what I do, yeah. <laughs> Jimmy Hill was invited to uh, 
get a team together to um we went to Khartoum in the summer and it was it was horrible well no no Khartoum was fabulous I love my history and Khartoum was fabulous but don't go in the summer because it was like literally by midday it was 130 degrees but more than that we're there the month before the rains broke the humidity I'm not kidding if ever you've been in a sauna bath you know, as the heat increases, you can't catch your yeah. breath. It was like that walking out in the streets anytime between 11 a.m. and 6 p.m. It was like that. And we're due to play these, uh, the this, this Dan National side, we, we're due to play them at 8 o'clock at night. And they brought the game forward to 5 p.m. And we just couldn't breathe. And we're there more or less to show them how to play football. And they beat us 3-1. <laughs> <laughs> it shouldn't have happened. It just was, we couldn't breathe. We couldn't run. Anyway, um, it was one of those coaches. We got a, all I got a shower and nobody's talking and everybody's sad and a bit frustrated. We could have done so much better. And we're on one of those coaches that haven't got, you're not looking forward and back. You look at the seats that are on the side of the coach. So you're looking at your pals, there's 16 on the left hand side 16 seats on the right hand side and you, your feet are in the corridor in the middle and every, the coach sets us off to take us back to the hotel Jimmy, Jimmy Hill's the manager there's people like Alan Hudson and Frank Monroe and international players and um, I just looked up and saw everybody's head was down and I said well but bearing in mind we played 90 minutes football in 120 degrees of heat and I just turned around to the lads and said, well, never mind too much, lads. At least the weather's been good for us. <laughs> and I just thought it was a throwaway line. But within 30 seconds, everybody in the coach is really laughing out loud. We asked for a replay. We asked if the, we, we could kindly play it again. And we beat them 7-1. And I scored seven goals. Only because... We didn't play it as a team. We played 10 at the back. Well, the goalkeeper, nine at the back, and me <laughs> on my own up front because of the heat and the, and the humidity. And I'd take a few deep breaths and I'd nod to the lads and they were playing keep ball, tip-tap, tip-tap. And as soon as I nodded, all they did was kick it over their heads and I ran onto it. <laughs> I got a corner once and no, not one of my teammates came over the halfway line. <laughs> you must have been sweating a bit there. Absolutely. But when I say I scored all the goals, it was a natural thing to do because I was the only forward they picked. Brilliant. And then obviously you re-signed for Burnley just after that as well. Yeah. Again, it was change of manager. Um, I played three years under Harry Potts very happily. Well, three and a half years. And then Jimmy Adamson took over, didn't see eye to eye. Played very happily under Bill McGarry for four years. And then Sammy Chung took over. And we did very, very well for a year. But then um, John Richards got a little bit of a knock early in the season. And he missed a week's training. And then when he was fit, strike, oh, no argument with this, but he went straight back to the first team. And about uh, three weeks later, Kenny Hibbett got a little bit of a knock. 
and he missed a week's training, missed one game, and he went straight back in the first team. No argument whatsoever. Two super players. Then I got a little bit of a knock and I was out for a week and Sammy Chung, the manager, said, I'd like you to have a run out in the reserves. And I said, well, John didn't and Kenny didn't. So perhaps you don't appreciate me. So I, uh, for the only time in my, in my life, I put a written request in for a transfer and the chairman came knocking on my door and asked me to rescind it. Sammy Chung came knocking on my door and asked me to rescind it. But I was a bit too proud and I said no. And I went back to Burnley. And Burnley at this point, Burnley, you look at sort of the history of Burnley, they've done so well through the 60s and 70s. And it's only really yeah. the 80s where they've hit the second, the third yeah. tier for the first time. And they were a, a, a top two or a top, uh, top two division club for a long, long time. And, you know, yeah. I think when people think of Burnley, maybe they think of a, a, you know, similar to Huddersfield, spent a lot of time in the bottom two, but that's not the case at this point with Burnley. They were a, I wouldn't say top side, but they were a club with a good tradition of being in the top top division. Yeah. Um, with you playing for Wolves and England Youth and and all of this, mm-hmm. Huddersfield had been slowly dropping down the league. You know, well, not slowly; it was pretty quick <laughs> actually. Wasn't yeah. it? Season, <laughs> so, season after season, basically. Yeah, it was pretty yeah. quick, but. All of a sudden, you know, in, in 1979-80, Huddersfield's revitalization, if you like, is, is under the way. There's, uh, you know, Tom Johnston's been and gone and, you know, a couple mm-hmm. of others. And, and all of a sudden there's a, a chap there called Mick Buxton walks into the football club and, and really grabs it by, by the tail, if you like, and, and, and yep. shakes it and, and, uh, and, and puts a lot of pride back into Huddersfield. And he starts building a team capable of pulling Huddersfield back up. And the story that I've read is that it got to around December time and he thought, you know, we need another striker here. You having played top flight football pretty much your entire career to drop all the way to the bottom tier. It's almost yeah. unheard of, isn't it? These days. Um, what, yeah. why would you, I'm glad you did, but why would you drop from, you know, the very top to almost the very bottom? It's a funny thing. It's football. If you, First of all, if I had it sum it up in two words, the answer is Mick Buxton. I liked him. I admired him. I respected him. Um, and but also he was prepared to pay me well. So you know I'm not being funny. He paid me extremely well to leave Burnley and to come to Huddersfield. And I actually turned him down. Um, on one occasion, but he did come back three days later and I did decide to sign. But basically the, the, the answer was respect and love for Mick Buxton. I knew he was a good coach and that helped me. I've got to say that Bill McGarry, including, I did phone about nine different people uh, to ask advice and every single one of them said, don't go. <laughs> Don't go to Huddersfield. He said, they all said, at the time, I was, I started my career when I was 17. I played nine years in what you and I would know as the first division, what is now the premiership. I played nine years in the first division and I played two years in the second division. And at the time, Huddersfield Town was sixth in the fourth division, but looking good. And it was a gamble with my career, but I took it 
and I think it succeeded. No, Just I know. I know bit, it succeeded. Yeah. I know <laughs> it's going to say a tiny bit. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, fantastic. And you struck up a brilliant partnership with uh, Ian Robbins up front. And the, I think Fletcher was there, wasn't he, as well? And the, the yeah. wing supply of Dave Cowling and, and Brian Stanton. And it ended up, I think, being a duel between Huddersfield and Walsall, was it, that year? Of who well done. Who well, yeah. 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 We were, we were fortunate on the very last day. Uh, it, it, if we needed to win the game anyway, but even if Walsall had won the game, we were going to be runners up, but we won the game and Walsall drew the game. That was the Hartlepool game, wasn't it? So Hartlepool, yeah. So 40, one, 47 one nil minutes. Down, one nil down yeah. at half time. Yeah, 47 minutes and 12 seconds apparently versus Hartlepool and that's the 100th goal of the season as well. And Ian Robbins. Yeah, and apparently yeah. that's, well, this is the only time Huddersfield have ever got, you know, 100 goals in a season. And Right. What a, what, an, what an achievement though to score that many in, in one entire season and and well I, I I can't take a lot of credit for it I was only there for half the season I signed in that week between no uh, just before Christmas between my birthday is the seventeenth of December Christmas is the twenty fifth I signed in that week between my birthday and Christmas my first appearance for the club was, was as substitute at Halifax at the Shay. Um, I'm going to say as well. Just to, I'll just throw this in here. So Rob Stewart was was very kind to sort of hook um, this this me and you up, wasn't he, Steve? So at, at yeah. this point, I, I want to throw in that um, you can read a lot on that 79-80 season with Rob's book. You know, the 101 Club as Great well. Book. Yeah, Great and that's book. that's in the club shop at Huddersfield. If anyone wants to wants to well do done. that, yeah, definitely well uh, get your hands on that. Especially Father's Day is coming up as well. Um, can I just say I've got a big decision to make? whether to sign my life away and join fourth division Huddersfield. And after a lot of soul searching, I decided to do it. And uh, Huddersfield Rochdale 5-1 or 5-0 in the previous game. And uh, Mick Buxton called me into his office and said, look, Stephen, you were at Halifax on Boxing Day, but I can't change a team that scored five. So don't get worried. You're here for me for the rest of the season. But... I'll have to make you my substitute on Saturday. Well, I fully understood that situation, of course. And if you know the Shea, um, there's a speedway track there. Yeah, yeah, so you've got the shelter of the stands where normally the sub and the manager would sit, you know, in that little dugout. But at Halifax, you've got the speedway track and then the dugouts are out, exposed, and they're like little sheds almost on the halfway line, on the sideline, the touchline. Well, as being substitute, it's my duty that it's bitterly cold day, very windy day. And these, you know, so I'm going around my new teammates, Dave Sutton and Keith Hanvey and Andy Rankin and Malcolm Brown and David Cowley, Mickey Laverick, they're all there wearing a tracksuit, warming up. So I've got to take these tracksuits off my new teammates and go back to the dugout. And so you can tell I'm very, very heavily laden down. And it was a very windy, rotten day. And just as I got to the dugout, it blew over. <laughs> <laughs> so there I am at the shade with 10 tracksuits in my arms. I threw them on the floor and I'm desperately trying to push this thing back up to sit in it. And I'm thinking, this never used to happen at Old Trafford and at, at Highbury. <laughs> You must have thought, what have I done? 
What? Yeah, absolutely. What have I? What a cock up I've made of my life. <laughs> but you know, everything everything was superb that season. And the year after, you scored quite a lot of goals, didn't you? So I think it was nineteen. Uh, you got in the um, eighty eighty one season. And uh, and Rob says, uh, ask about the hat trick at Exeter as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I'd I'd been well. According to me, it was a Tuesday night. Imagine Tuesday night at Exeter. It's a long way to go. Um, and don't get me wrong, it's our job. We've got to go. We, we want to go. We've got to go. I'm talking about the supporters. It's a 7.30 kickoff and it's raining and the supporters are out on the terrace behind a goal on a terrace with no roofing. So... Quarter seven, no, quarter past seven. Mick came into the dressing room. He said, Stephen, come here. I want to show you something. And he took me into the, he took me into the tunnel. And you imagine the tunnel's got a slope on the side of it. And as you walk down, your head slowly appears. And he just took me down the tunnel enough so we could see out. And he pointed behind the goal to about, I don't know, one or 2,000 Huddersfield Town supporters. And he just said, what do you see there? I said, Huddersfield Town supporters. He said, they've travelled a long way, haven't they? I said, oh, yeah. They're dedicated, aren't they? I said, oh, yeah. He says, look, son, he says, you're playing well, but you've stopped scoring. You're looking to pass the ball. I want you to be more greedy. I want you to score a goal. You see those lads out there? If you can score a goal for those supporters tonight, you'll make them very happy. And if you do score a goal, we will win the game tonight, Stephen. So I don't know how long, but in the first half, I scored a goal. And I ran to Mick Buxton. And the lads are all trying to jump on me, but I ran to Mick Buxton and I just shouted at him. He says, that's for them over there. And a short while later, I scored a second one. And I ran to Mick Buxton and I said, that's for you. In the second half, I got a third. And the lads are trying to jump on me, but I ran to Mick Buxton. I said, that one's for me. <laughs> so, yeah, Mick Buxton inspired me. What was it like to work for them, Mick Buxton? Because, you know, we, 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 we only see from the outside. and But as a fan, you know, uh, when you listen back to him, and I'm sure Neil and Dev have got a lot more experience of, of listening to Mick Buxton than I have. Well, maybe a little bit. Um, I remember him when he came back the second time, you know, at Huddersfield in 92, 93 that season. Yeah. Um, yeah. I've only seen clips of him on the end of an era video as well, but he, he says things which as a fan, you know, you can really get on board with, you know, how he says, you know, you've got to take pride in, in the area, you know, the, the area the kit and everything. What was it like to actually work under as a player? We, we never actually saw a lot of him. You've got to realise a, a football manager in those days, um, um, Ferguson, Alex Ferguson uh, once said to me, I was doing a speech at Old Trafford, and he once said to me, when I joined this club, I had a staff of six. He's not on about the secretaries and the, and the doorman and all that. His staff. And he told me he had a first team coach, a reserve team coach, a youth team coach, two physiotherapists and a chief scout. And that was his staff to run Manchester United. When he retired from 
Manchester United. He had 33 people on his staff. At Old Trafford, the first team squad have two dietitians telling them what to eat and what not to eat. Two dietitians for 25 footballers. Why, why two? Why not one? I don't know. What did they do all day? I don't know. But he had 33 staff climbed up from six. So when Mick Buxton was manager at Huddersfield Town the first time, he had, we, we, we very rarely saw him because a manager in those days, he had to view and see prospective players who he wanted to buy. He had to castigate players he wanted to sell. He had to go into the board, not the boardroom, the medical room most mornings to jolly along and see how the injured players were progressing. He had to go into the board meetings to try and plead with more money for the squad or whatever he may be pleading for. And so he's, he had a very comprehensive job. And the training of Huddersfield Town in those days was very much in the hands of John Hazelden, his right-hand man who had been previously caretaker manager of Huddersfield Town. And so we saw John every morning. We might have seen Mick two or three mornings a week. And even if we saw him for two or three mornings, it was probably for half an hour, not the full three or four hours. But I do believe in Mick's case, at least, that call it absence probably made him a better manager. Because when he said something to you, it was more meaningful because you, you, you weren't listening to the same voice all the time. I don't mean to be disrespectful to any other coaches, but, you know, Mick had come in and just drop a pearl of wisdom and it was enough. No, that makes sense. Completely makes yeah. sense. Yeah. Uh, that, that season, you actually hit a landmark, didn't you, as well, against Chesterfield. And if you, oh, watch, yeah. if you watch the video, it's a little bit lip readers beware, isn't it? I know. I'm afraid so. <laughs> My mother never forgave me for that. <laughs> but that was your that was your 100th league goal, wasn't well, it? In football? The, the, the reason for the uh, no, no excuse. I shouldn't have used the language, but I, I never knew I'd scored 99 league goals until Mick Buxton at two o'clock, an hour before the kickoff brought in a newspaper cutting from Chesterfield Express or Chesterfield, whatever it was called, the local paper, where on the Friday night, the Chesterfield manager has said, I like Steve Kinden, he's a funny lad, he's a good player, he's a great lad to have in your team, but I'll tell you something, he'll not score his 100th goal against us. I'll make sure of that. So Mick brought it into the dressing room at two o'clock. He said, what do you think of that? I said, well, we'll see about that. <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, it was a very good strike of the ball. It was a good goal. Yep. It's a good goal. I've seen that one. Um, at this point, I think it was at, at this point as well. So there's a couple of things I've got on that season as well. Um, I'm going to go to this one first because it's it's phenomenal. Um, Leeds Road. I started going to Leeds Road in the in 1989 as a, as a kid in 1989, and I only ever really saw four, five, six thousand crowds. You know, it was never never full. Um, most of it was closed. They used to close the far corner on the terrace and and, and things like that. And it was only really yeah. Black Blackpool uh, where we saw a decent 
you know, the very last game where we saw a big one. But during that season against Barnsley, 28,901 crammed into that. It's such a huge, you know, and you look at the picture and it's phenomenal seeing how many people in that in that old was ground. That, was that the day? I always, I always tell folk it was 29,000. <laughs> about that, yeah. We'll, we'll round it up, yeah. I, I was the one. Yeah. You were the one. Is this the, one of your first games, this, Neil? No, I, I started. I first went in September 1980. Mm-hmm. And we beat Sheffield United 1-0 and Brian Stanton Scott winner. Never forget it. Never forget it. Sheffield United. We, we beat at Leeds Road. Road. Yeah, Leeds Road, September 1980. And Brian, Brian Stanton. The, reserve, the return game was the two-all draw, was it? Yeah, the two, two goals at last five minutes yeah. from, from somebody not yeah. too far away on this screen. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Fantastic. But yeah, they're, they're, that's, that's, they're proper football memories, aren't they? It's, that, that's what it's all about. That's football. So, Neil, you were there at that Barnsley game then, I presume. You've, you'll yeah. have been a young youngster, a young terrier as well. You've got, you still got your card you wanted to show. Yeah, I've yeah, got uh-huh. You'll remember this, Steve. Look at that. I remember uh-huh. them. <laughs> <laughs> young terrier. I'm, sc- I'm screenshotting that, Neil, by the way. I was YT15. 15. 15? 15, when it first started. Blimey. When it first started. And I'll never forget, we went to do all the signing in and stuff in, in yeah. Old- Road ground and you were there welcoming everybody, yeah, uh, like like they were family. And it were you. You never forget those things. And as a as a kid, you're our heroes. So to be welcomed like that as a kid, it were really that. That's the things that you never forget. Oh, very kind uh, of you. Thank and, you. And getting getting that, the fact yeah. that I still got it. You know, I've got to say, I, you'll not be giving that away to anyone, will you? Absolutely not. No, that'll go <laughs> with me to the grave. And that's yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, special special memories. I remember the first meeting. Um, we played Millwall at home, February 83. We beat Millwall 5-1. We're on match at day. Wonderful. So, Wonderful. Yeah, stuff like that, you just never forget. The, the young Terriers were a big part of my life growing up. Sport I think players. it's been a good thing for the football club, hasn't it? Absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. And, it, and it was a one-off, the first and only of its kind. Yeah. It was unreal. You go to the sports centre and I were in uh, the Ray Wilson team. And we won, we won yeah. the that season and we played... played yeah. Side and the, the the lingering smell of vinegar from having sausage and chips for his dinner. Then, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. The, the proper yeah. memories out there, and it's you know getting getting on double decker bus down to the ground, all singing on bus, and yeah, fantastic. Yeah, fantastic. There were there were three things um, that I helped to create for Huddersfield Town after my football career that I'm very. Well, four things really, but three in particular that I'm very, very proud of, and one of them is the young terriers. Yeah, well, that gets it got young young kids like me hooked. Yeah, into into the blood. Why we're still going now? You know, you, you're blowing white forever, aren't you? So it's, sure, yeah, sure. Thank you for that. Phenomenal. I've got I've got two neighbours here. Uh, I live at Lytham St Anne's near Blackpool. Yeah, and um, not particularly neighbours. Two lads I know very well. And one of them was born and bred in Leeds. And in his heart, he's a Leeds United supporter. Yeah. But mm-hmm. because of the distance, he's got a season ticket at Blackpool. Yeah. He loves his football. And he'll tell me, look, I'm a Leeds supporter, but I've got a season ticket at Blackpool because I love my football. Yeah. And in just the same way, one of the best mates around here, born and bred in Newcastle, he'll always be a tune 
it'll always be a black and white, but he's got a season ticket at Blackpool. Brilliant. And I love that sort yeah. of atmosphere. I love the fact Absolutely. that they like football so much. Don't get me wrong. I mean, Blackpool just got promoted and they're very, very chuffed with that. They do love Blackpool. But David, my best mate round here, if Blackpool played Newcastle, deep down, he'd want Newcastle to win. Yeah, absolutely. Because, and in just the same way, just the same way with you, with the young Terriers, you'll never, ever, ever lose that heart feeling, will you? No, never, ever. It's just, no. it's, it's built in. It's built Good. in. And Good. we're the people that are allowed to hate, hate the club as much as we love it. And, but in hating a, in a hurting way rather than yeah. a, a hating way, if you know what I mean. It's, uh, yeah, absolutely. Well done. That, that's what football does to you. And that's a lot down to people like yourself, Brian Stanton, Malcolm Brown. Yeah. That's, yeah. What I, that's what I were brought up on. And that's... Uh, right. real I've got, I, I remember the story, actually, about that crowd of, 20, well, I say 29,000. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was a massive crowd. Yeah. And um, we, we ran out. We were playing towards the open end for the first half, the cow shed for the second half, and uh, we're playing the open end. And as we walked off the pitch at half time, Keith Hanvey, our number six, our central defender, he just turned to me, he says, Kindo, I've not touched the ball once. <laughs> Bloody hell. He says, You're joking. No, he says, I have out of play. I fetched it for a throw in. I went and got the ball and I give it to Freddie Robbins. I give it to Freddie, he said, for a throw in. I've not touched the ball once on the pitch. That's and that's the dominance that we had over Barnsley that day. Unreal. 45 minutes was practically all in their half. Unreal. And it just so happened that Keith... Anyway, I, I maybe took it with a pinch of salt. But of course, we had the video in those days that we covered over after one week. But... I, 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 we watched the video together on the Monday as a team, and uh, he was right. He only he never touched the ball in the first half. Amazing uh, stat, isn't it? Really unreal. Yeah. Do you want yeah. to jump in here, Dev? Uh, you're you muted at this at the minute. Sorry. So we'll just unmute Dev. There you go, mate. He's still there. He is. Uh, I. I um... My first season was the 79-80 season, and, and I was 10 years old. And to try not to embarrass you too much, um, uh, it, it was a case of when we played football in the junior school at Paddock, it was always baggy kingdom for me, because I was always a big lad as well. Right. And uh, you, you, anyone that knows me will tell you, you my sort of childhood hero. And... Um, that, that game that Neil's mentioned, the uh, 28,900 yeah. Um I'm from a police background family. My dad was proper old school. And when Dave Cowling scored that looping header to make it 1-0, yeah. uh, everybody rushed forward and I got crushed. And I, I think I was either 10 or 11 at the time. And I, I remember thinking, try not and cry, try not and cry. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. 
To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Cozzy, what, what's your favourite away day? Matt, it's got to be the city ground at Nottingham. Just old school stadium, you're right near the pitch, great atmosphere. But there's nothing like playing at home. Same goes for McDonald's. Maximise your home ground advantage with McDelivery. You in? Order now on the McDonald's app. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Right, because my father had let me come down to front rather than stuck with him. And um, anyway, I I was in absolute agony and I was crying. And he said, Gio, what's up with you, you wet flannel kind of thing? (laughs) And uh, we got home, I'd broke my ribcage. (laughs) Oh, no. So my father's there saying, you know, Dusty sent off. And I was 10, 11 year old with the broken ribs. But uh, I also did the, uh, the, the the young serious thing. I loved it. Uh, the, the whole, uh, like Neil said, going down to the sports centre in the morning time. And you used to have to walk past the frying pan, uh, which were opposite Johnny's. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, you know, you went, you went in and... You, you sat with your group and then we did that Blackburn thing, Steve, where we walked to Blackburn and then we did the pitch one where we did a, a full circle. Yeah. That was 83. Yeah. The 82 yeah. we walked to Blackburn, 83 we did one. That's right. Um, but one, one sticky memory, which I've told Matt about, was uh, we played Sheffield United and you wore a skull cap. You remember it, Steve? Yeah. And they had a centre-half and I'm pretty sure he was called McPhail or something similar to that. McPhail, yeah. yeah. I've never seen a man more petrified of a bloke in my life <laughs> of what he was that day. Because, like I keep telling these lads, uh, I mean, I'm only guessing at 15 stone, but you're a big fella and you, you were coming at such rapid pace. Yeah, yeah. Defenders yeah. literally did shit themselves. Yeah. And, um, like you said earlier, it was a ball over the top by Cowling on the left if you played slightly left of a, of a front two. Or Stanton had feed it over the top and you were away and you just knew that the, the net were having it at that point. Right. So it's uh, it's an honour and a privilege to uh, to really speak to you today. But before, before I bore you any further, I, I'm just happy to listen to everyone else. I did 20 years at police. I don't know if you can quite see this, Steve. Can you? Now that was my leaving present from the uh, Uddersfield CID, uh, knowing how much I thought about you. And um, when when I interviewed you for Dave Sykes about it, it was while Lee Clark was here, so it did ten years ago. But yeah. we did it over the phone, and I was kind of hoping that you could sign it for me. But it, we did it over the phone. <laughs> so if you're ever in Uddersfield, um, absolutely. I really when, do need that signing. Matty, Matty, Matt, uh, sorry, not, not Matty. When this is over, have a word with Matt. Yeah. Get my mobile number. Yeah. Give me a ring so I've got your mobile number. We're yeah, due no over with you over in Home Firth sometime in the next three or four weeks. Oh, brilliant. If you could spare 10 seconds. Absolutely. Absolutely. Man, it costs you a beer. <laughs> <laughs> We're not, could extend we're not, to a round death, can't you? We're not, we're not meeting on a side street somewhere. We're meeting a pub. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Get some crisps out of him as well, Steve. Make sure you get a packet of crisps as well. <laughs> All right. Um, just very quickly before I go, one other thing that sticks in my mind 
Uh, yeah. well, <coughs> uh, I went everywhere with my father at this point, and um, we once went to an away game, and I said to Josh, my friend, earlier on, I just can't remember where it was. But we, I think we just signed Mickey Kennedy, who had this big sheepskin kind of coat on. Yeah. And uh, I, I distinctly remember one of their opposition fans asking my father who you were. And my dad said, that's our secret weapon. We let him out for the last 30 minutes. You won't know what's it yet. <laughs> and you came out and you scored. And I, I'm pretty sure it was Stockport or, or Don, it could have been Doncaster, but I just can't remember for definite. And I, I was so... You were so yeah. Not happy about that. <laughs> no, I was, I was so when I came on at Sheffield because I'd had this horrendous... Yeah, you were. Yeah, you were. It could have been that first season, Steve, though, possibly. The only time I was subbed then was at Halifax. Was it? In my debut game. Yeah. Right. Right. Unless I've got the wrong side of the story, but I just remember a conversation saying that's our secret weapon and... Uh, <laughs> and Looking at their, their centre-ass face, thinking, shite, what do you do with this kind of thing, you know? <laughs> um, I'll, tell you, I'll tell you all a funny story about the Sheffield United away game. It was on Match of the Day, wasn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah. So I've had this horrendous injury, uh, an elbow, which it shattered my cheekbone. And I've been out for two or three weeks. And then I had fashioned the skull cap, which would protect it. But I wasn't very happy wearing that bloody thing. Anyway, for no good reason, on a Saturday morning, I hadn't, hadn't played for four weeks or something, I woke up on early on the Saturday morning. I lived in Burnley. And I thought, oh, sorry, I'll go to the game this afternoon. So I drove early, knowing what time the lads were meeting and on the coach. And uh, I turned up and Mick Buxton said, what are you doing here? So I thought I'd catch a lift, boss. I wasn't driving all the way to Sheffield. I've, I've come on. <laughs> so, all right. So I got on the coach. When we got to Bramall Lane, Sheffield, it was a muddy quagmire. Yeah. And Mick Buxton took one look at the pitch. I'm out on the pitch with him, looking at the pitch. And he says, Kindo, just your conditions, Liz. <laughs> <laughs> says, you what? He says, I'm going to make you my sub. I says, you can't. I'm, I've only, I'm, I'm not fit. I, I don't, I'm, I'm still broken, this thing. I'm not happy with it. He said, no, no, I'm going to make me sub. I promise you, Steve. He says, I'll only bring you on if I have to. So we went in the dressing room and I wore a size 40 pair of shorts. The only other person to wear 40 was David Sutton, the captain, David Sutton. So, so I know what's happening. None of the others, none of the lads know I'm going to be sub. So I went into the kit because the, the people that put the kit out would measure them. You know, they know what was demanded. And I nicked the one pair of shorts that was 40. <laughs> <laughs> so we all got stripped. And Sutty is wearing these 38s that make him look like a ballerina. I mean, he was... And he says, come on, Kindo, be fair. I says, no, no, I first come, first serve, Sutty. And he said, <laughs> I said, go on then, because you're playing the 90 minutes. So I gave him the shorts on the, knowing Mick Buxton wasn't really going to play me. Because 
we were 2-0 down. I've got the video of my goals, but unfortunately, I don't like to show my family because I'm wearing 38 shorts and they look rather short. <laughs> yeah, but Sutty was happy. Sutty was happy. You could always hear Sutty, couldn't you? He always used to squeak when he won his headers. Absolutely. Absolutely. What a, what a brave man Dave Sutton was. was I, yeah. I always remember, Steve, correct me if I'm wrong here, I might have imagined this, but I don't think yeah. I have. I'm pretty sure that I've seen you warm up at town before a game in a Burnley claret jumper. Mike, well done. Pretty, I'm convinced that this has happened. Mike, well done. I can't just imagine that from nowhere, can I? <laughs> I'm, I'm also pretty sure... That you, I'm not sure if it were Frank Worthington's testimonial. <coughs> and you were, you, I'm pretty sure it was Frank Worthington's and you came out and it were pissing it down. And yeah. we played it after the game on a Saturday and you yeah. came out with a brolly up. Well, right. Brilliant. <laughs> What's wrong with that? It was raining. <laughs> it, just, it just wouldn't happen nowadays, would it? It just wouldn't no. happen. No. no. Neil, Neil, do you remember Mr Kinderney in the crossbar that time that's still wobbling now? I've got it written down here. Penalty Have against Fulham, eight bar, went back to halfway line. It did. <laughs> I've, told, I've told Josh this tale many a time, and I'm sure he thinks I'm uh, exaggerating. I've got it written down here. Pen, penalty yeah. against Fulham. I don't know why I remember that either. Yeah. But, it was just hero status from there on in. You haven't got the programme. You haven't got the programme of the match. I probably have somewhere. Have you got the programme of the match? I probably, I probably have somewhere, somewhere yeah. Well you, well, you have a look at that, and it's not my fault I missed the penalty. I took 14 penalties in my career, and I scored 13. The Fulham game, um, it's 25 to 3. I'm sat in the loo. I'm sat on the toilet. Sometimes you didn't need to go to the toilet, but you just sat in there just in case, and I'm reading the programme. And in his wisdom, George Binns, the company secretary, who was a great guy for the club, George Binns decided to have in the programme four photographs of Steve Kinden converting a penalty. Yes, yeah. And each and one of them was down low to the goalkeeper's left. So again, I know that the goalkeeper, and of all things, the goalkeeper was an ex-colleague of mine from Burnley, Jeff Parton. So as I'm putting the ball down, I, Jeff was shouting at me. Trying to... Where you're going, go straight down the line. And I ran up, it hit straight down the line. Jeff dived low left, but it just went a bit high. And the reaction, it bounced off the crossbar. And the reaction landed in centre. Uh, it was definitely back on halfway line. It nearly ended up an own bloody goal. <laughs> yeah. The Something only about... penalty I missed. What about telling well. goal against Shrewsbury in FA Cup? I was going to link this in, Neil, because I was going to say, we're talking about goalkeepers. There's two things I've got down here. Well, there's one where you almost broke the net away at Charlton and there's a, a goalkeeping mm -hmm. performance there that day, which was phenomenal by all accounts by, by Andy, Andy Rankin. Yeah, yeah. And then you've also got a record, haven't you, for uh, the appearances in goal against Shrewsbury where I think three goalkeepers appeared. Yeah, 
Yeah, the the uh, Google, not Google. What is it? it? What is it when you read that? Anyway, they've got it. Wikipedia. Slightly, Wikipedia. Well yeah. done, Wikipedia. They've got it slightly wrong because they said that I was injured, which is wrong. What happened was um, Andy. There's about two minutes to go in the first half, and Andy there was the corner for Shrewsbury. We were already one down. Andy had conceded a goal, and this corner was going near the near post. Andy ran forward, he caught it, and the centre forward for Shrewsbury ran in and shoulder charged him. I don't think to this day it was dirty. I think it was aggressive, but not dirty. And he, he, he shouldered Andy, and Andy's head jerked and hit the cross, it hit the post. He never, ever played football again. Oh, bloody hell. I didn't realise that. No, he was brain damaged. Oh, Andy dear. Rankin was brain damaged at that incident. Of course, we didn't know that at the time. We, all we know is he's carried off the pitch. Two minutes to go. And Dave Sutton, the captain, said, looked at me and said, Kindo, what are we going to do? And I said, well, I played a bit of rugby, my kid, I'm used to my hands, I'll go in goal. So I went in goal for the last two minutes to the half because we didn't know if Andy was coming back on. We go into the dressing room, Andy's been taken to hospital, and our substitute was Mark Lillis, who made a good substitute for me up front. So at halftime, Mick Buxton said, are you comfortable in goal, Steve? I said, yeah, I don't mind. So we went out and played like that for another sort of 15 minutes. But unfortunately, I conceded a goal. By the way, an unstoppable shot. <laughs> <laughs> I can see the goal. So now it's 2 0 down. In his wisdom, thought, well, they get two back out up front. So, and Mark conceded a goal. And we lost 3 0 having played three goalkeepers, each of the goalkeepers conceding one goal. Wow. Yeah. Which makes it a record, I believe. Yeah. There was a, a new face came in that season. So Terry Austin came in for a, a record fee, didn't he? Um, I think he got off to a good start, but he struggled quite badly, didn't he? How difficult was it to, to see him struggle? Because I don't think he was a, a big hit, was he, with the fans? Yeah. Just reading back. He, he wasn't a big hit in the dressing room. Okay. He was a little bit arrogant. And um, we did wear arrogance. Um, it was also difficult for him because Ian Robbins and myself did make a good partnership. Um, if you ask Mick Buckton about his signing Terry, uh, he'll always say, bloody hell, I signed Brian Sampton, I signed Ian Robbins, I signed Freddie Robinson, I stayed signed Canby, I signed Steve about his bloody Terry Austin. <laughs> he said, one bloody mistake in here. <laughs> so bad, Mick, you know, Mick realises it, it wasn't his best move. And, yeah, yeah. I, 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 in there.
topics of my day, i.e. Division as opposed to Premiership, Championship, Division 1 and 2. In language of my day, if you're in the fourth division and you want to be promoted, in my opinion, you've got to have four or five players that really should be playing in the third division. You've got to have a new player capable of playing. In, if you're in the third division, you expect to be promoted. You've got to have four or five players good enough to play in the second division, etc., etc. If you're in the what we call the Premiership now, and you want to be near the top of the Premiership, then in my opinion, you've got to have four or five players who are comfortable at international level. So it's an, a step up. And if you've got those four or five or six or seven players that can take the step up, then without taking the step up, you've got a chance that they will take the club up. <laughs> when, I, when I joined Huddersfield Town, in my opinion, Andy Rankin, Malcolm Brown, Keith Hanvey, Mickey Laverick, Brian Stanton, Ian Robbins and David Cowling were all capable of playing in the higher division in, with comfort, with comfort, not struggling in Division 3. And in actual fact, two years later, I'd have retired, but that the nucleus of that side took the side into the Division 2. Yeah. yeah. Molly Brown went to League 1, didn't he, with uh, Newcastle? With Newcastle, absolutely. Yeah. And got a ruptured Achilles tendon, yeah. Like I said, the 81-82 yeah. season is when you retired, isn't it? Sorry. Say again? Uh, carry on, Steve. It's fine. I was 81, gonna say, 81-82. Yeah, I was going to say that's the season where you, a couple of in, you got a couple of injuries and you had to retire at, th was it 30 that you had to retire at? I would, well, I, I, here's a good question for you all. When did your career finish? When you've played your last game or when your contract expires? <laughs> Good question. I played my last game of football in the October of 81. And in December of 81, I would have been 31 year old. So in effect, I stopped playing football when I was 30 years and 10 months old. But you know how you know how the calendar year and December the 31st and your tax year on April the 5th well your footballing year your contract always expires on June the 30th to sign a four year contract it would end on June the 5th whatever it would be 1925 so my contract although I stopped playing football in the October I was 31 in the December and I was contracted as a professional footballer by Huddersfield Town until my 30, well, until June the 30th, by which time I was 31 and a half. But in that season that I had to retire with injury, so did Richard Taylor, a goalkeeper. So did um, Ian Robbins chose to retire. Freddie Robinson got an injury that had to retire. And I was trying to get fit 
And believe it or not, I was sidling over the hills. And I said to George Binns one day, when by this time it was my birthday and I knew my career was over, I said to George Binns, is there anything I can do to help the club? He said, what do you mean? You can go home because that's what you do when you're injured. You stay at home. You're not going to play again. Your career's over. I said, no, no, there's only two people in the office. Let me help the club. So we invented this thing for the programme um, and we call it Kindon's Corner. Remember it well. With a big K, Kindo's Corner with one big K corner. And it, the idea was that the fans could write into me and I'd do a gym or fix it, you know. I said, this doesn't involve selection of the team. I can't do anything about that. But, you know, if you're not happy with any aspect of Huddersfield Town, I, this is what I wrote. Don't go telling your mates in the pub. If I don't fix it for you, then tell your mates in the pub. And it was very, very successful. And off the back of that, when I was leaving the club six months later, the chairman offered me the job as commercial manager, which I started to do. I did that for five years yeah. and started the golf. We, we always had a golf year every day. We started the walk to Blackburn, which was very successful for the disabled area, area for the disabled. And then, of course, the Young Terriers. And just before I left, the other thing, um, oh, what did we call it? Where you, not not a president's club. Uh, patrons. The Patrons Association. Yeah, I started the Patrons Association. And that got ripped off me. That got usurped. It's not happened what I wanted to happen. Um, I thought we could become the first club that was policed and owned by the supporters. And my idea for the Patrons Association was that, let's say, it doesn't matter what I say, let, the, the aim was perhaps a thousand members. And that thousand members would elect their chairman. And their chairman, the chairman of the Patrons Association, would automatically become a director of the football club, sitting in on board meetings, making decisions on behalf of the supporters, making the decisions for the club, who to sign, who not to sign, who to let go, whether to open that part of the stand or close that part of the, the decisions that directors make on behalf of the club. But for once, the players, the, the supporters would have a say, probably outvoted by the other directors a lot of times, but at least they'd have a say. And that's what's my ideal for the supporters for the Patrons Association. That sounds pretty I'm afraid he got watered down. <laughs> it's, it sounds a good idea. Um, I'll let just... those pesky fans get too involved, can you? <laughs> One of the problems, of course, with it is that, you know, somebody off the terraces gets to know all the players' wages, which, you know, can be a little bit difficult at times and that sort of thing, you know. If you elected the right person, though, that wouldn't happen, would it? Sure, absolutely. Barcelona's owned by its fans. Yeah. It is. A lot of Spanish clubs are like that, aren't they? And there's a few English ones as well. Steve, is that we could have potentially been as good as Barcelona. <laughs> no, 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 no. Hold on, hold on. I'm joking hold on. I know you are, 
But listen, listen, perhaps not on the field, but there's nothing at all, nothing at all to prevent Huddersfield Town being as good as Barcelona off the field. No, they didn't. People. Nothing at all. They, Barcelona have a fabulous thing that I've taken to the club and I've taken to Burnley, I've taken to other people and I want them to do it and they, they won't consider it for some reason. And it's a fabulous way to raise money for charity. And Wolverhampton Wanderers may be adopting it soon. They're trying to get it through. Barcelona players, if you sign for Barcelona, on the contract, everybody's contract at Barcelona, you agree to give 1% of your salary to the ex-players association. My appeal to the club would be half of 1%. Now, you were at that out, lads. Let's just say, well, you tell me, not the best player, not the top player. What? For a, for a regular first team. 15 grand a week? Yeah, probably. 20 grand a week? It'll be a lot. 30 grand a week? Just hit me with the number, lads. About 20. 15, yeah, probably 15, 20. No one biting? 15, 20. 20. Let's, at this level. Let's, let's, let's use 20. 20,000 pounds. 1% of that. Help me. <laughs> You're on your own, huh? 200 quid. Yeah, it's about yeah. that, yeah. Half so percent, half percent, quid, 100 quid. Yeah. Right? It's not to them. That's what I'm saying. If you're earning £20,000, £100, by the way, it's tax-free. So it, he's not getting taxed on that £100. It's coming out at gross. So it's actually only costing him 52 quid, 55 quid, whatever it is, 57 quid. But, but the charity is getting 100 quid. Let's say there's 15 players getting that money. The charity is getting 1,500 quid. Yeah. That's per week. So the charity is getting something like £70,000 a year. Not bad, is it? And that's just with your top 15 players. If you add all the kids in and et cetera, et cetera, it's something like £100,000 a year to do good in the community. I, I, when I was at Huddersfield Town, we formed the next players so an ex-players football team. And we used to go around the local Sunday league team, but the charity, we always asked for money and they thought we wanted money, 500 quid. And they thought I was going to split it between the lads. No, no, no. I got the 500 quid for taking the players for a Sunday game. And then I found out off the local lads, which young kid, you know, was poorly and needed a trip to Disney World or whatever. And then we'd pay them. It all went back into the community. And I think, I think if one club grasped this nettle and said, right, we'll, we'll make it a condition that half of 1%, anybody wanting to sign for Huddersfield Town, 
pays half of 1%, which is a pittance, then all of a sudden, the charity could be a hundred thousand pound a year better off. That's a brilliant idea. Which you can do a lot with, of course. Absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. Again, it, it leads back to what the what I tried to do with the patrons, you know, mm. getting money in. That was to help the club. That was slightly different, but too old now. <laughs> <laughs> Still got the passion for it though. I could feel that coming through. Absolutely. I was say, were you involved in the, the supporters' coaches at all? The supporters' coaches, uh, the travel coaches. coaches, yeah, the travel coach too. Yeah, to yeah, games, I used yeah. To, I used to I used to travel on them to away games when I was commercial manager. Five years I did that for. Yeah, that was uh, that was one of the memories from uh, from one of our. Um, uh, match reporters Martin used to say uh, he used to go on the supporters coaches and it was always a good laugh you know when uh, when yeah when Kindo was yeah. on it I'm sure you've got some some great <laughs> stories haven't you from from some away days especially sort of around yeah, the we, 80s we, and whatnot we did a lot of this we did a lot of with the microphone sat on front of the bus and, and some things it were and uh, usually my problem isn't getting a story out of me it's shutting me up <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah some good memories, very, very good memories, but sometimes memories are there. I've actually got to go in a minute, uh, Matt. Okay, no worries, mate. Um, can I just ask Steve before I go who he considered the most talented player at Huddersfield Town while he played there? Frozen. Can anybody, anybody do me a favour and find out who that Charlton goalkeeper was? I can't look it up because I oh, I might be able to actually. I don't need my eyes. Is that I know he was a very, very, very good goalkeeper. Yeah, Malcolm Malcolm Brown got a goal and I got a goal. Andy Rankin had the game of his life. He did. Uh, and the goalkeeper was an excellent goalkeeper. Absolutely excellent. Who? Is it Nicky Johns? Was that it? Yes, oh. well done, Nicky Jones. Well uh -huh. done. Google, I can't take the credit and, of Google. And back. I shot, <laughs> I shot from about the penalty area, and the ball whistled just over his head, between his arms. His arms were upstretched, and it and it whistled over his head. And he told me in the players' lounge afterwards. He says, "I just got my fucking head out of the way." <laughs> <laughs> he said it in the I just want to ask you one question. Who was the most talented player you played with at town? Yeah. At Huddersfield. Because I know you played with Mel Eves, George Berry. Yeah. You know, at Huddersfield, who was the most talented that you played with? At Huddersfield? Yeah. I would go in his position, Malcolm Brown. Oh, Malcolm was a, a a bit of a freak. A man that size ought not to be able to run that quick. Or he's a super player. The yeah. most skillful one, David Cowling. Yeah. David was the pet boo boy for the crowd. I realised that. David 
cowling, as in the term, I mean, the coward, i.e., didn't like to tackle. And no, didn't like to chase back. Listen, if he makes you, I'd rather a man. Yeah, fantastic. And and Dave Cowling said on the end of the era video about what great camaraderie you had and, you know, the sort of togetherness and the bond you all had as players. And he sort of made it sound like you were all sort of best mates, if you like, as well. It must have been really great to play in a, a team like that as well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it, it was it was a, a good time. It was a good time. And we, we still keep in touch, you know. We, we have a sit-down and a meal together every three or four years. That's good. That's great. Yeah, yeah. And um, there was one story, actually. Um, I think uh, just uh, sort of towards the end of your career, you came up against somebody uh, maybe just at the start of, of his in a, a testimonial game. And someone <laughs> Phil, Phil knows very well uh, in, in a young Peter Jackson, didn't you? I just wonder if you tell us yeah. a story when you first met Peter Jackson. It was... Um, Lord of Peter, I forget his name. Peter is a goalkeeper for Bradford City. And it, it, when I knew him, he played at Swindon Town. Peter, don't matter. It's his testimonial. And um, I, I tell you how important it was to us. It was the end of the season. Freddie Robinson, Keith Hanvey, and myself played golf that afternoon. <laughs> So, you know, we weren't trying to keep fit for it. It was just a testimonial game. And we ran out at Bradford, and I didn't know, but we had this young centre-half was making a name for himself, a lad called Peter Jackson. And early in the first half, I was only five or six minutes gone, and I got a ball laid up to me. And as I controlled it, Peter Jackson came in, testimonial game, and walloped me from behind and it, as he slid in. And I accidentally, as I saw him sliding in, I accidentally fell on top of him. And as Peter scrambled to take his, you know, retake his defensive position, I grabbed hold of his shirt and didn't let him up. And this 17-year-old kid is looking into the eyes of a 30-year-old experienced, pissed off forward. And I said... It's a testimonial game, son. If you come through that me like that again, you won't see the rest of your career. <laughs> and he told me to go away in two words, which weren't go away. He scrambled up and within a couple of minutes, we had a corner. And so I went and stood on the goalkeeper, you know, a la Jack Charlton used to. And Peter's next to me. And I turned round to the goalkeeper, whose testimonial it was. In fact, I think the goalkeeper was injured, the testimonial. Anyway, I turned round to the Bradford goalkeeper, winked at him and said again what I was going to do to Jacko. Years later, Jacko said to me, Steve, do you remember that time, the testimonial? I said, I do. He said, do you remember when I, when I told you to piss off and all that? And I, yeah, do you remember telling me again near the goalie? I says, yeah. He said, I shit myself. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good old Jacko. Good old Jacko. Absolutely. Um, that that's it for all the stuff I have on my my agenda. Here. Phil Phil obviously fancies himself as a bit of a golfer, don't you, Phil? And you've uh, I believe Steve probably beats you, doesn't he? 
Oh, I'm crap at golf. I used to, <laughs> we just, I used to play, I used to try and play like obviously when you when you play and you get a bit of free time, don't you, in an afternoon and yeah. um every at the end of the season it was always nice to catch up with these guys because obviously we, we obviously never really saw them play. It were you know it, my my probably my great 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 granddad that managed to see Steve play. Um, so, so we never we never got much to see of these of these games, but you just knew, do you know what I mean? Everybody had so much respect for them all, and obviously Fred yeah. were always there, Keith and and yeah. Kindo and, and stuff. And it was just nice as, as young lads, just to just to be in, in and around them. And we never really got a chance to play with them because we were always with other teams, weren't we? Obviously, other people who paid to to play the tournaments. But it was always nice to sit and listen to to some of the stories. And obviously, bless Frank, you know, obviously. Um, just passed away. It, it, you know, some yeah. of his stories are great as well, and it's the the kind of eras of playing just seem so different now from from when you were obviously playing. So, I mean, I've got all sorts of questions to ask you, but we kind of really privileged, I think, and I think it's got worse and worse as as the years have gone by with kids growing up into the game. Um, I think you had to graft a lot harder for for a place in a team when you were back in the day when you were younger. And, I just find it amazing that you didn't really start playing until competitive until 15. I think obviously kids now they're, they're starting football at six, and it's yeah. you know one-to-one training sessions with private coaches and, yeah. and you know the, the I mean my young lad plays golf, cricket, and football, and, and I want him to Good. play Good. a number of different sports to do that. And well done. A lot of people are just fixed on one spot, and it's it's I think it's really interesting to see that you could have been a rugby player and. And you've taken on on football and, and made a made a career out of it. And, and just picking up on something you mentioned earlier yeah. in terms of your strengths, in terms of your speed. There's a documentary about um, Cristiano Ronaldo. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Um, and he raced as a, a, a hundred meter Spanish sprinter. And right. in a in a straight race, the sprinter obviously won. But in an agility race, like in a diagonal zigzag, Ronaldo won. Um, and for me, I think you you must have more strengths in terms of your your playing and not just pace because you were saying Bolt's played in Australian football and and it's not come off and he's obviously fighting. yeah you what 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 would you say we are kind of apart from the speed what were your biggest attributes Kinder when you were playing strength courage no messing about no messing about. And don't you think times have totally changed from that now? Because you wouldn't really see much of that now. Um, and With the ball, I mean, and, and no about them. Yeah, I, I, it's funny you should say that. And I haven't, I haven't related this little story for forty years. The way you mentioned about Ronaldo losing on this straight sprint. Yeah. When I when I was at Burnley, uh, there was a Burnley lad, or just outside Burnley lived. A lad called Malcolm Yardley. Now Malcolm won an Olympic an, no, not gold, an Olympic medal for Great Britain in Rome in 1960, when he was a member of the 400 meter relay team. So his strength is 400 meters. Yeah. Okay. He used to come in and train, spend an hour training the Burnley first team morning a week. Hey, it, we, we played on a red carpet and we knew where the line was for 100 yards. Okay? He'd have trainers at each end of this 100 yards 
and there'd be five or six of us every five every five seconds. Malcolm would say, "Go." Fifteen seconds later, the coach at the far end said, "Go." Fifteen seconds. So you had fifteen seconds to run a hundred yards, stop, turn round, and start again. And you had 15 seconds to run the next 100, yeah. 15 seconds for the next, and you did 400s in a minute, as it were. And you had a two-minute rest. And we had to do four of those. We'd done one, we did four of them. So in the end, you're running 1,600 metres. Now then. That sounds like, sounds like Lou Macari's training. Well, I found that easy. Because I could run the 100 yards without really sprinting in 11 seconds. Yeah. So I had four seconds to turn round. And Malcolm Yardley found it very easy because he'd been trained to do that all his life. After we'd done a lot of hard work with Malcolm Yardley, we'd have a five-a-side. After five, yard, five minutes of five-a-side, Malcolm Yardley would be puffing and panting. Yeah. Because he had to stop and backpedal and run side to side and run up. And then all of a sudden, somebody's giving him an elbow in his chest. Yeah. And then he staggers a little bit, but he's got to run back now, running backwards to defend himself. And then he's got to run forward in a little sharp. And he was knackered. Yeah. And five aside for us was like a joy. It was a game. It was playful. And that's what I mean. So, I think yeah, I've not... Until you said that about Ronaldo, I'd forgotten that story about Malcolm Yardley. Yeah, because like I say, it, it, it's all fed good and well being able to sprint as fast as you could, but you're still going to have something else, aren't you? And for you to be successful. Absolutely. You know. Um, and Absolutely. then I've, I've got another question. Sorry, guys, before you drop in, but like obviously I've been a town fan since I was a, since I was a kid and Leeds Road was like, I can still smell it and I can still remember that the... I didn't manage to play a game on that pitch, but I was on the pitch as a, as a young kind of um, town boys player when we had awards and stuff. Um, and I'm and I'm privileged enough to be able to play on the John Smiths. But what was it like playing on Leeds Road on a on a Tuesday night under the lights? Because that place, when when I was in the stands, was just ridiculous. It were it was just such an amazing place. But just to play on that pitch in a competitive game, I know it might not sound much to, to anybody, you know, anybody else who's played in the league at Highbury's and stuff, but. What, what were your feelings about Leeds Road when you were playing there? Well, without being arrogant, please forgive me for this. It was... What what car do you have? Um, a Kia. A Kia. What's the best car you've ever had? A BMW. Right. When you first got that BMW and your mate said to you, you've had it a year, and your mate said to you, oh, what's it like to be able to go home in a BMW? You'd probably turn around and say, what do you mean, what's it like? It's, it's my car. Yeah, yeah. It's my car. So absolutely no disrespect to Leeds Road, but I'm 16 year old and I joined Burnley and at 17, I'm a regular player on a place called Turf Moor. Five years later, I played regularly on a place called Molyneux. And if I'm yeah. not playing at Molyneux because we're away from home this week, I'm playing at White Hart Lane or Stamford Bridge, or I'm playing at Portman Road, or I'm playing at the Dell or St. James's Park. 
and then I go back to Turf Moor, and then I go to Leeds Road. I'm not knocking Leeds Road at all, but it was no, it was like you getting in your Kia. It's my job. Yeah, yeah. It, it's funny, isn't it? Because, it, like, for me, like, it, if I was to go play at Highbury, the old Highbury, yeah. I'd, I'd much rather be, have a chance to play at Leeds Road. Sadly, Steve lost connectivity at this point, but I want to say a huge thank you to Steve for coming on to the podcast and telling these fantastic stories. And I'm pleased that these stories can be retold to generations of town fans who didn't get to see him play uh, so that they can appreciate how special he was to those fans who saw him during the Buxton era. Uh, Steve, again, is another former town player who demonstrates that the, the old adage of you should never meet your heroes is a complete load of rubbish and has been a fantastic ambassador for Huddersfield Town since 1979. And he continues to be to this day where he was a real pleasure to speak to on and off recording. So thanks for listening to this episode. And if you do like these type of episodes, please let us know. And we'll be sure to do a couple of more if this is what this is the type of content that you guys want to hear. So thank you. And uh, a big thanks to Steve. And uh, I hope you've enjoyed it. There's a team that is dear to its followers The colours are bright, blue and white They're a team of renown They're the pride of the town And the game of football is their delight And all Upon the field of play Thousands loudly cheer them on the way Often you can hear them say Who can beat the town today And then the bells will ring so merrily Every goal shall be a memory So town play up And bring that cup Back to Huddersfield So town play up And bring the cup Back to Huddersfield Lads, what's your favourite 90th minute goal? Got to be Heffley against Leeds. A shot from Moy and sliding in at the death, Michael Heffley. Great finish to the game. Shared with my family, only made better by ordering McDonald's via McDelivery afterwards. Three points, not nugget share box, spot on. Order McDelivery now by the McDonald's app. You in. At participating restaurants, 18 plus, serving times, delivery fee and terms apply. See mcdonalds.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.